You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. Mark chapter number five, please. I've um, been encouraged not to tell mother-in-law jokes. And so, it, it, it would, um, apparently everybody has their price, and it would appear mine is fried pork chops and gravy. And so, we'll go with that, so, love you. Mark chapter number five. We'll begin reading in verse number 21, and for time's sake, we'll skip a few verses as we go along, but in Mark chapter number five, verse 21, if you'll stand together, we'll begin reading God's word. Verse 21, it says, And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of the physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. And when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Drop down to verse number 34. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace, and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the rule of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus had heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he has come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, Arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve, and they were astonished with great astonishment. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for the Bible, and thank you for this great church, this great place. Uh, where the Bible is taught and preached faithfully and many souls have been won to Christ. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be in this place tonight and pray that your blessing would be upon the preaching of your word and help me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Looking down the stairs at a football game, a guy spotted an empty seat right there along the 50-yard line. And so he maneuvered his way down there and he asked the man sitting next to the empty seat if it was taken. And the guy said, no. I used to bring my wife to all the games with me, but ever since she passed away, I've just gone alone. The guy kind of was like, it's almost like a sorry I asked kind of thing. He said, you know, why don't you just invite a friend? And the guy said, I can't. They're all at the funeral. You know, death is a part of life, right? We uh, know that. We understand that in this world that we live in, death is a part of life. And up to this point in the book of Mark, as you get to chapter 5, Jesus has shown that he has power over nature, power over demons, power over disease. And now here at the end of chapter 5, we see that Jesus also has power over death. That's an important thing to remember because, as I said, if the Lord tarries his coming, we all too shall die. 
Uh, if the Lord tarries his coming, every one of us will face death because death is a part of life. A pastor was up preaching on death one Sunday morning and he got into it and he pounded the pulpit and said, every member of this church is going to die. When he said that, a little boy sitting on the front row kind of giggled a little bit. Well, the preacher, that didn't sit very well with the preacher. And so he said it again louder and got more forceful. And he said, every member of this church is going to die. And by the time the little boy just laughed out loud. And so the preacher stopped, called him out and said, what is so funny? The boy said, I'm not a member of this church. <laughs> Whether you're a member of this church, another church, or no church, everybody, if the Lord tarries his coming, will face death. Not only will we all face death, but we'll all face trials and heartaches along the way. Job 14.1 says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and in full of trouble. The prophet Amos wrote in chapter 5 that sometimes life is kind of like the man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. And then when he gets home and leans upon his wall, he's bit by a snake. I mean, ever had one of those days before? Yeah, I think we could all relate to that. It's just one of those days where it just seems like things are just going from bad to worse, and it just continues to almost spiral out of control. And sometimes we feel that way. We get caught up in all the trials and the difficulties, the heartaches that this world uh, has for us, and sometimes we seem to feel like that guy that runs from a lion only to run into a bear, to get home and to try to lean for rest on the wall only to get bit by a snake. Difficulties are a part of life. We know that. We are well accustomed to saying that when other people are going through difficulties, but sometimes we forget about that when we're the ones going through the difficulties. And the problem with it is that sometimes the difficulties of life derail us from God's purposes for our lives. If we're not careful, as trials come and things happen in our life that are uncomfortable, that can kind of shake us and derail us from the purposes and plan that God has for our life. Sometimes, like Jairus, we know where to turn for help but sometimes if that help doesn't look the way that we think it should, sometimes we're tempted to give up. Sometimes we're tempted to turn back and to try to find our own help and to make, manufacture something on our own, in our own strength. Because the reason is in our lives, faith and, faith and fear are constantly pulling in opposite directions. That's a battle that you will face just about every day of your life. That when situations arise in your life and the difficulties of life, just life in general, circumstances will come up and there will always be that battle where you'll feel that pull between faith in God and retreating in fear. Part of you will want to just retreat and hide and sulk and lick your wounds when there's another part within you that knows you ought to press forward in faith in God. And there's that constant struggle, that constant battle. So in those times of distress, what keeps us going? What causes a person to stay faithful in the presence, in the heat of immense struggle and trials and difficulty and heartache? What causes someone to keep praying, to keep witnessing, to keep believing? We see a little bit of that in this man named Jairus tonight. Jairus displayed a persevering faith, one that refused to give up on God, one that refused to turn back, refused to do it in his own strength. He had a persevering faith. Tonight, I want to quickly give you three elements to his persevering faith. The first thing we see is that there was a personal attachment. There was a personal, a personal attachment. In verse number 22 again, the Bible says, And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. 
I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. See, Jairus, this wasn't just an ordinary problem for him. He had a personal attachment. This was something that was very dear to him because this wasn't just a name on a prayer list. This was his daughter. This, this was something that was special to him because there was a close personal attachment. Jairus was hurting because his daughter was dying. If you're a parent, you, you probably understand what, that, what it is to hurt when one of your children is suffering. Uh, whether it be something tragic or severe, or I know, I know the Lord's been good to us, and we haven't really dealt with anything quite, you know, like big-time injuries or disease in our family. But I, I know just that helpless feeling that comes whenever one of your kids has like the stomach bug. And they're just really hurting, and they're, they're, they're really sick, and you, you want to do something. You want to help, but you can't. I mean, there's nothing you can do to relieve their pain. There's nothing you can do to make it all go away. And Jairus is feeling that on a much more enormous level. His daughter is at the point of death, and he wants to do something, but he feels like he can't do anything. And so he's in this constant struggle in his heart, and he goes to Jesus. Can you imagine the pain and the frustration that Jairus must have felt as he stood by and he watched his only child grow sicker and weaker and sicker and weaker with each moment that passed by. For Jairus, what we see here is his personal attachment. What made his faith so uh, strong and what allowed him to persevere was this personal attachment that we see. It comes from what we call the principle of ownership. You know, when something is yours, it means more to you. Right? right? As I said, this was his daughter. And when, when it's not just a need, but it's my need. It's not just a burden. This is the burden I carry. It's not just you're worried about someone else. It's my testimony I'm concerned about. It's my church that I'm invested in. It's my Sunday school class I'm praying for. It's my family. Beyond all of that, it's the attitude of, this is my Lord. I want to please my God. And I want to do what God has laid upon my heart because I want to please my God. I want my relationship with my Lord to be what it ought to be. See, some don't go out soul winning and they don't, they don't witness to those around them because they don't have a burden for the lost. I hear that a lot. Well, God just really hasn't really given me a burden for the lost. And you know, if, if God really places a burden on my heart for the lost, then I'll begin to share my faith. Then I'll begin to be a witness and maybe I'll come out soul winning. And, or I just don't have the gift of soul winning. And they say, people say things like that. People that would really uh, count themselves spiritually minded and believe that they're right with God. But what is it that Jesus said to Peter? Remember, he said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah. And when Peter said, hey, Lord, you know I love you. He said, if you love me, feed my sheep. He never said, Peter, if you love sheep, go feed my sheep. He said, no, if you love me, go feed my sheep. Listen, we don't witness because we love lost people. We witness because we love Jesus. And if you'll just commit to witnessing and sharing your faith and being a soul winner because you love Jesus, and while witnessing because you love Jesus, guess what? You'll learn to love lost people. As you do what God tells you to do and as you walk with the Lord, you'll begin to get a heart for what God has a heart for. Sabbath, a national survey asked members of churches, what is the purpose of your church? 89% of those that responded said to take care of the members. And only 11% said to win the world. See, in our life, nothing is dynamic until it's specific. And we'll never make a difference in this world as long as, it's, as, long as winning souls and the Great Commission is the church's job or the pastor's job or the staff's job. Until we get a hold of it and say, no, this is uh, it's my Savior. I want to please my Lord. I want to do my responsibility to win the lost. 
It's my responsibility. And Jairus had that. That's what made what the, his uh, faith in God persevere even through this interruption, we'll see, because he had a personal attachment. This wasn't just somebody else's daughter that he had no connection with. It was his daughter. It's his daughter. Not only his daughter, but we see his desperation. A famous paratrooper was speaking to a group of young recruits, and when he had finished his lecture, he was taking questions, and someone asked him, what, what, what made you decide to make your first jump? The paratrooper quickly responded. He said, an airplane at 20,000 feet with three dead engines. You know, sometimes we say, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And here Jairus, he, he was desperate. He was desperate. It was, it's important to note that Jairus was a ruler of the local synagogue. Right? He was a part of the traditional Jewish religious leaders that were generally opposed to anything and everything that Jesus did. Right? This was the group of people that were there that uh, could not stand the fact that he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. They, they couldn't get past that he was healing people on the Sabbath day. They were following him around trying to find anything and everything they could use against him to criticize him and oppose him at his every turn. They couldn't uh, help but to criticize that he was eating with tax collectors and other sinners. And so Jairus, for him to run and fall at Jesus' feet was to reject the official position of everybody that, uh, that he worked for, everybody that he with, all of the other religious leaders in his crowd. He was to turn back and reject their official teaching and their official standard on who Jesus was. He had to humble himself greatly. But Jairus was experiencing what I've witnessed many times in ministry, and that's when you have a desperate need it often causes you to run to Jesus. And Jairus said, you know what, this need, because it's my daughter and I've got to do something. And he was willing to swallow his pride and to humble himself and go against the other religious leaders and say, look, I don't care what anybody's going to say about me. I don't care what they're going to think about me. They can fire me. They can excommunicate me. Whatever they want to do, I've got to get to Jesus because he had a desperate need. And look, a lot of times people do that. They have a desperate need and it causes them to turn to Jesus. Can I tell you when it happens, don't criticize those that do. I think sometimes in a church setting, we're real good at that. Like, oh, well, yeah, you know why they're here, right? I mean, you, you heard about what's going on in their marriage, right? I mean, of course they would show up at church. Well, you, I mean, you, you know why they're here. I mean, you heard what their son did, right? I mean, obviously, they're, yeah, they, they got nowhere else to turn, so they'll just come to church and expect the church to help them. Look, when people don't, don't criticize people for knowing where to turn in the time of help. Isn't it Jesus that said, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick? Jairus was desperate. This was his daughter. And so he was willing to do something about it. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 7 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Look, let's not criticize people who at least realize where to turn to in their desperation. So Jairus had this persevering faith, and we see it stemmed from the fact that there was a, a personal attachment. But secondly, number two, we see that there was a providential appointment. Verses 25 through verse 34, we see that Jesus answered Jairus' request by agreeing to accompany him to his house. I mean, just right there, can you imagine how that made Jairus feel? I mean, here he is, part of the religious, traditional uh, Jewish synagogue leaders that oppose Jesus and are against him at every turn. And so here he comes, probably thinking Jesus wants nothing to do with him. Definitely not willing to help somebody that's been trying to harm him. And so he begs him, and Jesus says, sure, let's go. And they start heading to Jairus' house. I'm sure he's just immediately overwhelmed with joy, thinking, man, this is going to work. If I can just get him there, if we can just make it in time, this is going to work. 
But on the way there, a woman who had been sick for 12 years crept up into the crowd and grabbed Jesus by the hem of his robe. She was healed instantly. I mean, just instantly. It wasn't some long process. That's not what held everything up. She was healed instantly, but then Jesus asked her to kind of give her testimony. And I've had the privilege of being at a couple really good camp meetings through the years, and I, I love that kind of setting, man, the music and the preaching. I, I, love, I love stuff like that. I remember a couple times being there, and, man, you hear all this tons of music. I mean, they sing and sing and sing. I mean, for hours, and it just seemed like they're singing forever. And then, like, two different preachers preach. And so, I mean, we're talking, it's really late. And it's been great, but it's really late. And then the pastor gets up, and he's about to close everything out. And he gets up there, and he's like, before we go, anybody got a word for the Lord? And then that person stands up. I mean, if you've been around church, you know who that person is. And it's like, well, it's been a hard year and everything. And you're just like, come on. You know, I'm ready to go home. Let's get out of here. It's late. So Jesus asked this woman to give her testimony. And so put yourself in Jairus' sandals for a moment. He has an urgent need. His daughter is dying. Time is critical. I mean, time is of the essence. And if you really follow, fast forward to the end of the story, this delay quite possibly caused the death of his daughter. I'm sure he's thinking, man, why couldn't Jesus just come back later and heal this woman? I mean, she's already been sick for 12 years anyway. What's one more day? Right? Let's go. We got it. My daughter is dying now. Why don't we come back an hour later? What, what does it matter? He's thinking, come on, Jesus, come on. Let's go. I'm in a hurry, but it doesn't seem like you are. Anybody else been there before? Thank God, I, I, I've got this need, and I need you, like, now. And sometimes it doesn't always seem like God's on our timetable, does it? That we want God to do this, and we want God to do it yesterday. We, we've got this need, and to us, it's urgent, it's pressing, and we think that if it's going to happen, it has to happen now. I know I've been there many times before. I've prayed for direction to lift up my head and think, where's it at? Prayed for somebody uh, for healing and thought, well, why aren't they better? Prayed for them to get right with God and think, why aren't they at the church? Why aren't they at the altar? You just think as soon as you pray, it's like, all right, God, I said it. Now make it happen. And sometimes it doesn't always work that way, does it? We see through the Bible that there's usually four ways that God answers our prayers. First, sometimes he answers them directly. Sometimes God gives an immediate answer to our prayer just the way we really want it to happen, right? I think a great example of the Bible is when Peter steps out of the boat and he's walking towards Jesus on the water. Then all of a sudden he looks around, he sees the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus reaches out and grabs him and saves him. An immediate answer. Not only that, but obviously in your own life, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the very moment you called out to God and asked him to save you, immediately he answered that request. That is a, a prayer request. That is a prayer to God that He answers immediately every time. It's not a process. It's not a procedure. It's no waiting period. If you call out to the Lord and ask Him to save you, that is an immediate answer that God gives to that. Secondly, God answers prayer differently. Sometimes He doesn't just give us what we ask for. He gives us something different. I think a great example is Paul. Remember, Paul begged God three times to take away the thorn of the flesh. And the Bible says that he prayed three times begging God for this, but instead God gave him a different answer. He gave Paul grace to deal with his affliction. Paul was praying, take it away. But each time God answered, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In my strength, your weakness is made perfect. And he understood that what Paul really needed in that situation was not for the affliction to be taken away, but for God's grace to sustain him through it. God does that. He answers differently. He gives us something different than what we ask for. Third, sometimes God denies our requests. 
Because it's not in His will. Before you want to pout and get angry about that, even Jesus faced that kind of an answer. Remember it was Jesus who prayed in the garden, Oh Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Even Jesus dealt with this in his life. Look, if you have a preschool son and he asks for a rattlesnake for a pet, your answer is going to be no. Right? Because you know better. You know better that God knows best. So sometimes we've got to be willing to just trust him. That if he says no, there must have been a really good reason. And the fourth way that God answers prayer that we see here in the story of Jairus is that sometimes his response is delayed. That was, that's what Jairus was facing. In John chapter number 11, we see that again in the story of Lazarus. Remember, he's sick, and Mary and Martha, they send word for Jesus to come immediately. But Jesus purposely delays his coming. And by the time he arrived at Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. When he gets there, Mary and Martha, they come to him, and you can almost hear the animosity and the accusation in Martha's words when she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And just a very blunt, not, you know, no, no greeting, no welcome, just, Lord, if you wouldn't have delayed, if you would have been here, none of this would have happened. Have you ever felt the same way, maybe, as Martha? You asked for God for something, and it didn't happen on your timetable? Jesus knew that there would be much greater glory to God that would be given if he was to raise Lazarus from the dead than if he just showed up and healed his sickness. So if you're still waiting on an answer to prayer, be patient. Be patient. And when you get in a hurry to, for God to answer your prayer, don't be surprised when God is not in a hurry. God knows best. Jairus had to learn that lesson. I think every one of us need to learn that lesson repeatedly. Sometimes we learn it, and the very next time we go through a trial and a difficulty, we forget it. We think immediately again, it's got to happen now. I need this God. Where are you at? Jairus had to learn that lesson. We need to learn that lesson. And I believe this interruption was exactly what Jairus needed to strengthen his faith in preparation for the bad news that he was just about to get. He needed this interruption. He needed this delay. He needed God to kind of put him on hold and allow him to stir and wrestle with his faith and wrestle with his emotions so that he would be prepared for when the bad news came telling him his daughter died. Jairus displayed a persevering faith. It came because he had a personal attachment. This wasn't just any old need. This was his daughter. And he was desperate to see something happen. Not only was there a personal attachment, but there's a providential appointment. We need to understand how the Lord works. God doesn't always operate the way we want Him to, when we want Him to work. We need to understand that God always knows what's best. Amen. Number three, we see that there was a powerful anticipation. Look at verse number 35. The says, While he yet spake, there came from the rule of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the rule of the synagogue, Be not afraid. Only believe. So after that little interruption takes place, finally Jesus resumes his journey back to Jairus' house. But suddenly, no sooner did he get back on the trail again. I mean, I'm sure Jairus is just now starting to get excited, thinking, okay, all right, he's coming. Maybe this is going to work if we can just get there in time. I think this can still work. But suddenly a messenger comes and delivers some really, really bad news. He says, your little girl is dead. And then he says probably what we would all feel. Why are you bothering Jesus anymore? Oh, why are you still praying? Why haven't you quit? Why, why haven't you given up? Go home already. Leave Jesus. Let him be. Why troublest thou the master any further? 
Can you envision Jairus just collapsing in grief? I mean, here, remember, he, he was so desperate. He humbles himself, swallows his pride, turns his back on his religious upbringing, says, I've got to get to Jesus. He gets there. He starts to get Jesus there. This whole interruption takes place. He's saying, come on, let's get there already. Finally, Jesus starts heading back that way. And no sooner than they get back on the trail again, the news of his daughter's death comes to him. He thought, man, that's it. We're too late. There's no hope. She's dead. But I love this about the story. Before he could even express his grief, Jesus recognized it. Before he could even say what the groanings of his heart were, before he could even express his grief, the Lord said, Be not afraid, only believe. Jairus never even got to speak a word. You know what he was feeling in his heart at that moment. But before he could even express his grief, Jesus looked at him and said, Be not afraid, only believe. And Jairus took those words, and he kept walking with Jesus. Jesus knew the fear and grief of Jairus' heart before he could ever even express it. That, that, that means a lot to me. I love that about the Bible. Because there's been times where I've had a need, and I, I've, I've been hurt, I've been broken, and I've went to the Lord with every anticipation of going boldly to the throne of grace and begging God to meet this need and begging God for guidance and begging God for direction and begging God to heal this hurt. And man, I'm prepared. I go get down on my knees before God and it's just nothing. Can't, can't even say anything. It's like I don't even know where to begin. And I find myself on my knees before God, just mute. I, have, I just can't say anything. And I don't know what to say. I don't know how to put into words everything that's going on in here. But even in those moments, the Bible says in the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit can interpret those groanings which can't even be uttered. And there's those times where maybe all you can just kind of muster is just a... <sighs> but that's all it takes. I heard once a preacher say it this way, that God knows sigh language. That if all you can do is just kind of get before the Lord and just kind of, Lord, that God knows exactly what you're saying. God knows exactly what you're feeling. Here Jairus was broken and just at the lowest point of his life. And before he could even try to figure out how to express it, God met him right where he was at and expressed that he knew exactly what he was going through and spoke directly to that. You know, bad news can reach us all at any time. As big and strong as we like to think that we are, we are all fragile people. There's not a person in this room tonight whose whole world couldn't be flipped upside down by your cell phone ringing in your pocket right now. We're fragile people. Bad news can come to us all at any time. But whenever you receive bad news, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't retreat in fear. Hear the words of Jesus. Be not afraid, only believe. Amen. You see, when your faith is in Christ, you can look past the disappointment. You can look beyond the delays. And you can press through the difficulties in your life. You can have a powerful anticipation that somehow God is going to do something great. God is going to do great things through this somehow, even when we can't see it. Jairus took Jesus at his word. And he didn't ask for an explanation. You don't see Jairus going, how? how? Just only believe how? Be not afraid? What are you talking about? He didn't ask Jesus for an explanation. He just simply took Jesus at his word. Can I remind you 
God doesn't owe us any explanations. He's given us one better. He's given us his promises. God's given us many promises in his word that we can cling to and hold to even in the difficulties of life. He's promised he'll never leave us or forsake us. He's promised that in all things, he's working everything together for our good and for his glory. And there's a saying that maybe sometimes we often say that really isn't quite true. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've said it. You know, people like to say, well, where there's life, there's hope. But the truth is, we should probably be saying where there's Jesus, there's hope. Because if you've read your Bible, you understand that there's a few times where Jesus has raised people from the dead. All right. Life isn't a prerequisite for God to work. In fact, the Bible says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. God didn't need any spiritual life in you to birth new spiritual life. So where there is Jesus, there is hope. Grief and grief is a painful process for everyone, including Christians. But for a believer, it's just that. It's a process. It's not a destination. It's just a process. What I mean is, yes, we sorrow, but not as others that have no hope. Part of our hope is just that, that our grief is a process and not a destination. That weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The Bible says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to get stuck there. You know, in verse number 39, the Bible says, And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And the book of Luke, chapter number 8, when it tells the same story, in verse number 53, the Bible says that, And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. How many times have we limited God because of what we know? Right. We've already made up our mind that this is what's going to happen. I mean, we, we know. We, we know how this situation is going to play out. We know what, how we've, see, we've already seen this before. We know exactly what's going to happen. And we limit God because of what we think we know. I'm talking about tonight anticipating God doing great things. You say, well, you just don't know my situation like I do. I, mean, I can imagine these people gathered around when Jesus says that, that she's just sleeping and they laugh him to scorn. I can think of hear him saying, well, you just you haven't been here like I've been here. We, we saw her when she was well. We saw her get sick. We saw her take a turn for the worse and decline. We were here when she took her last breath. So with all due respect, you just don't understand the situation quite like we do, Jesus. I know. We say things like, well, I know there's no way they would get saved. I, I know there's no, no sense wasting your breath. There's no way that they would ever come to church. There's no sense even praying about that situation. I know how that will work out. Look, I'm talking to a Wednesday night church crowd. Every one of you in here, I believe you would say, you know, emphatically that you believe God can do anything. We believe that. And we know there's Bible for that, that God can do anything. We know God can do anything. But I'm afraid we've made up our minds that he won't. We say things, we know God can do it, but we've already made up in our minds that in this situation, he's just not going to. Oh, he could, but it's just not going to happen. God's, we've already made up our minds that he won't. Can I tell you tonight that whether God answers your prayer the way you had hoped or not, God is good. Now, we're reading the story tonight. It all worked out for Jairus. He had the heartbreak. His daughter died. He dealt with that. Jesus was with him through that. But ultimately, Jesus resurrected his daughter. There was that reunion and it had a happy ending. But whether God answers your prayers the way you hope for or not, God is still good. Maybe you've heard of the missionary Corey Ten Boom. She wrote in her journal, Deep in our hearts, we believe in a good God. Yet how shallow is our understanding of his goodness? 
How often I've heard people say, how good God is. We prayed that it wouldn't rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. You see, the difference in perspective is based on our faith. Do you have a persevering faith? Or do you just have a faith in God that lasts as long as your prayers go the way you want them to? Jairus had a persevering faith. So I ask you tonight, are you personally attached enough to get desperate? What is it you want to see God do in your life? What is it you want to see God do in your church? Are you personally attached enough to do something about it, to get desperate? To get desperate enough to maybe come out and knock doors on a Saturday morning? To volunteer, to teach at junior church, help in a Sunday school class, to work on a bus route? Are you personally attached enough to get desperate? Desperate enough to keep praying, to turn your back on everything that you, uh, that you once believed, that you once trusted in, and just cast yourself completely at Jesus' feet? Do you trust God in the interruptions of life? When things aren't on your timetable, do you start taking measures in your own hands, trying to manipulate the situation to get God to do things when you want Him to do them? Or do you trust God in the interruptions of life? And lastly, are you expecting God to do great things? Are you limiting God in your life because you've already determined what He's going to do and how it can happen and who He's going to use and how He's going to use it? Or are you trusting God and expecting God to do great things? Someone said it this way, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.